What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both of their companies and in their personal lives, and what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. If you are enjoying the show, take a minute to leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts. In today's episode, I sat down with Daniel Vasallo. Daniel was working a dream job as a software engineer at Amazon. His salary had ballooned to over $500,000 a year when he made the unthinkable decision to quit and become an indie hacker. I think it's pretty easy to imagine that the story ends poorly, and Daniel himself was very worried that it might end that way. But it turns out that he's done a stellar job. He's made hundreds of thousands of dollars in less than a year and a half since quitting. And this is his story. You know, when I think about you, I think what's particularly cool is that you are into lifestyle design. You've really thought about how doing what you do as an indie hacker can give you a better life. It doesn't seem like you're just in it for the money. In fact, I mean, we'll get into this, but you obviously left a very high paying job to do what you do. And doing some research for this episode, I found your Indie Hackers account and I went back to like the earliest comment that you've ever made, which was mm-hmm. on February 27th of 2019. So this is like right after you left your job at Amazon. And I had posted yeah. something asking everybody, you know, what their top reasons were for becoming Indie Hackers. Why were they Indie Hackers? And you had the number one comment. I don't know if you remember this, but you got like 18 upvotes. Uh, and you said, I want to work on my own terms, doing the things that intrinsically motivate me. Yeah, that's, I, I don't remember that, but it sounds, sounds like something I, I would have said back then. <laughs> um, yeah, I think at one point I realized that uh, I had been at Amazon, I think. So in total, I've spent eight years at Amazon, but I think about five years in, at one point, I looked around me and I sort of realized that no matter how much more I'm going to get promoted, no matter how many more raises I'm going to get, no matter how much more money I'm going to be making, my lifestyle was unlikely to change significantly or to move closer to sort of to one that better matches my preferences, which I started to realize that my ideal lifestyle is one where I have more, lots of control on what I work on, uh, sort of choosing from where to work on, choosing what not to work on, right? Something that in a typical career, uh, you're typically restricted, right? So I had started searching and it took me probably a couple of years, two or three years until sort of I, I managed to take the plunge <laughs> and sort of abandon a career that by every measure, by all metrics was succeeding. You know, I was getting promoted. I was a very, very much in high regard at Amazon. I, everyone was kept, was telling me I had a lot, very bright future. I was getting encouraged to stay. They were rewarding me financially extremely well, way beyond my, <laughs> my wildest expectations. Basically, I managed to get to know many people quite closely that had been there either for a long time at Amazon or sort of similar big tech companies. And to be completely honest, uh, I, I really didn't like their lifestyles, right? And I started wondering for myself, is this it, right? Is this what I'm going to be doing for the next 10 years, 20 years? I had just had two kids, right? So I was sort of raising a, a small, a young family. I really didn't want to sort of be a person who, you know, leaves home before everyone wakes up, <laughs> you know, you arrive home as soon as, almost as everyone else is going to sleep, mm. right? You're exhausted. 
even if you manage to work just the 40 hour <laughs> week and that type of cardio, you're typically just mentally drained, right? It sort of takes all the energy out of you. So long story short, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive more into the details, I think, um, I pretty much left at the beginning of 2019 in February without any concrete plans, actually, of what I was going to be doing. I was extremely lucky. I think I had a, a very healthy amount of savings. I had managed to save about over five years worth of expenses. Right? So sort of that gave me some peace of mind to spend some time exploring and experimenting and figuring things out. And yeah, that's what I did. And maybe we'll sort of go into some of the details of how that turned out to be <laughs> about a year and a half later. I mean, I think it's the the ending to your story a lot of people are familiar with. And it's not the end, obviously, you're still you know in progress. But now you've made you know hundreds of thousands of dollars from products that you've created in the last year and a half. Uh, you're working an extremely cool lifestyle. Like, for example, like when we were scheduling this podcast, I just... DM'd you on Twitter and was like, hey, can we push this back an hour? And you're like, sure, no problem. I've got nothing on my schedule today. And that's very much by design. Like, <laughs> yeah. You keep your schedule open and empty. You don't like have a busy calendar because you want to be able to basically fill up your days doing whatever you want. Absolutely. No, I, I'm extremely careful what commitments and obligations I get into. You know, you can never really take nothing. Right? So it's not absolutely against any commitment or any obligation. But I like to, uh, I, I'm definitely designing and arranging my life in such a way where I have lots of spare time, like lots of uncommitted time. And this is something I'll, I'll admit, I sort of started, I started discovering this, that I enjoyed this after I left my, my career, after I left my job. I just sort of initially, I thought I was just going to focus 100% on one thing and just use all mental energy directed on just one thing. But as demands progressed, sort of, I started to realize that I'd rather have, you know, wake up in the morning, you know, just do the very minimal things, you know, check my emails, whatever. And then after 10 a.m., like my whole day is free and I can use inspiration, opportunity, whatever happening during the day to sort of figure out where to spend my time, where to spend my energy. And sometimes they're not even work-related. Right? Sometimes it's a sunny day outside, my kids are home and we decide to you know, spend the day with, 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 with the family, right? which, is, which is definitely an intentional part of weaving my personal life together with my work arrangements, which I'm extremely <laughs> enjoying. Right? And I think it's extremely uh, healthy <laughs> if you can do it. I've got kind of a similar approach to life or like a desire to have these very unstructured days where I can wake up and just do whatever I feel really excited to do, which on one hand is great because then you're almost always basically having a great day. If you don't feel like working on your eBooks today and you want to work on your podcast or your Twitter or whatever it is, like you can just do that and it's going to be a great day. But on the other hand, what I realized very quickly into working on any hackers was that there's an entire class of things that I need to get done. But if the question I'm asking myself at every moment is what do I most want to do? Like those things just never come up. They're never the answer. Like I never wanted to like <laughs> write a newsletter. I never want to like fill out like, you know, accounting forms. How do you deal with all yeah. that kind of stuff when you're sort of living every day doing what you want. To be honest, I think I try to eliminate as much as possible the things that I don't want to do. It's not always possible. Obviously, I, I have to file my tax returns every April and so on and so forth. I, nobody's going to get <laughs> no. It's not going to do itself. But the things that I have an option to not do, even if it comes at the cost of leaving money on the table, leaving opportunity on the table, I think really hard whether I should take them. Sometimes I do take them. I sometimes uh, and 
we can talk about something that I chose to do. I, I started working a little bit part-time with Gumroad, which I've sort of committed to taking a little bit of commitment, but for some some rewards of part of it financially and part of it other things. So it's not I'm completely against uh, entering any obligations, but I'm extremely careful. You know, you mentioned newsletters, that it's something that I've talked about a lot, whether free newsletters or paid newsletters. Initially, I thought I will enjoy writing a newsletter, you know, every week. But when I find myself trying to do that, that I realized that, you know, I have nothing to say and I don't want to sort of, <laughs> uh, 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 sort of put content on a schedule, right, and sort of force myself to do that. So I chose not to do it. And I'm very likely missing out on many things in that case and in many other cases that I'm doing. So basically, I think try to summarize the approach is, I try to optimize for enjoyment and things that are sort of that I feel like I would do anyway for their own sake as soon as I can afford it. So I thought whenever I can afford it, there are definitely exceptions where um, uh, I have to do something because it has to be done. But I try to, if I can eliminate them or I can reduce them, <laughs> I try to. If I had to put it in a sentence, it's that you've switched from a life where you're exchanging your freedom and happiness to make more money to a life where you're exchanging your money to get more freedom and happiness? Yeah, I think there's there's a bit more to it right? because I think that there's always this balance of how much do you sacrifice in the present sort of for, for, for a better future. Um, and sort of, I think probably the simplest way to describe it right now for me is that I'm trying to do the minimum possible to have long-term peace of mind. So I'm still keeping an outlook on the future. I'm not just trying to live, uh, you know, to spend all, everything I have right now just to, to extract everything in the present and then in the future, I'll have nothing. But I'm, I'm trying to do the minimum possible there, right? So basically I'm trying to, you know, save the minimum possible, sort of invest and so on and so forth, the minimum possible. I'm not trying to maximize everything there, quite the opposite, just so that I know I have enough buffer. So if something happens, if the next COVID <laughs> happens, you know, again, or some other thing that nobody can predict or the economy goes crashes or whatever, I'll have enough buffer to sort of be able to recover on it and then optimize for the present, right? I'm not... I'm not a big fan of the deferred lifestyle, right? Where you're just sacrificing almost 100% or a huge part of your life for, uh, do you, you know, in the present, right? Just for the promise of living it sometime in the future, 10, 20, 30 years from now. So that's sort of a little bit how I'm, ta- how I'm taking it. Obviously, uh, it's, it's a bit easier said than done. It's not, it's sometimes it's a bit nebulous. How do you decide? in terms of how to use your resources, time, money, attention, and so on and so forth. But it's sort of my framework of how to, how to try to decide. So let's go back to the, the beginning where this all started for you, which is, as you said, you're pretty bored with your job at Amazon, and you didn't like the lifestyle that it gave you. And it's pretty remarkable to see like, what you decided to give up when you quit. Because you started at Amazon making like 75K a year, and you worked there for like eight or nine years and got all, all the way to the point where you're making over $500,000 a year at Amazon with great coworkers, yeah. like a lot of recognition, like you're having a pretty, it's pretty much as good as it gets working a job for somebody else. You know, how, do you, how do you quit something like that? Yep. And how do you feel giving that up? No, no, it's, I, I'll admit, right, when, I, when I sent my notice, uh, I had a little bit of cramps in my stomach. <laughs> like, what have I done? Because it's hard to look at uh, you know, all, the, all the stock that I had sort of vesting in the next couple of years 
and leave it there on the table. But I'll, I'll, I think I had, I had been preparing myself mentally. Basically, I think the way I managed to give up is, is I convinced myself that I've written off that chapter in my life. You know, I've lived it. I was happy, uh, happy that it happened. Uh, it definitely helped me financially. But I was completely happy to just give it up and not even, because many people that I've seen, you know, sometimes taking a sabbatical or, or sort of taking a year of work and whatever, typically leave with the expectation that they're going to go back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can never say never, who knows, you know, what, what could happen. But I left with the expectation that this is completely, I, uh, you know, I completely abandoned that career for me. You know, so it's all just, you know, mentally realizing that that was, you know, that wasn't improving my lifestyle. And I had already realized that if I'm working and my lifestyle is not improving, I mean, what's the point? <laughs> so explain to me this, this philosophy of writing off an entire chapter of your life, because it reminds me of kind of future authoring, which is this idea that you spend time deliberately authoring your future life. You write about what you want to happen to yourself. And there are other similar practices where you just think about yourself from almost a third person, like you're a character in a book or a movie, and you're just reading chapters about your life. And you want that character to have a very interesting life, and so you make riskier, more interesting decisions than you would if you're just viewing yourself in the first person. So when you talk about closing a chapter of your life, are you literally thinking about yourself as a character in a book, or what are you doing here? I don't think I've ever seen myself as a, as a character in the book, although what you just said sort of resonates a bit with me in terms of sometimes when people ask me, like, what's your definition of a good life or what, what, what sort of, what, what are you trying to do? And probably I think that the best description that I like is a life is just a good story that you're proud of, right? It's basically, I think the only thing we really control is how, how we react to things, right? And what decisions we make. This sort of, it's just something that I want to, you know, I, I think that being satisfied with your life is just looking back and saying, you know, I made uh, I reacted properly, right? Or I reacted in the best way that I could have. And I'm proud about how the way I reacted, obviously, because you could <laughs> react in very, very different ways. But in terms of writing it off, I think it's more just, it's a philosophy that I heard from the Stoics and the ancient, <laughs> the ancient Stoics, Greeks and Romans sort of talk about, I think Seneca talks about this a lot in terms of it's healthy. They believed <laughs> to occasionally give up almost all things that you have sort of accumulated in your life and whether and i think uh, something in between of actually giving it up is just sometimes just mentally giving it up like mentally writing it off just assuming that that it's gone and living your life in a way that you're not trying to make sure that you're keeping that option open that you're going to recover it it's just a way i think of helping you sometimes make take the plunge and uh, sort of not keep regretting what you're leaving by. Because I, I'll admit that sometimes it's, it's harder to leave a good situation, a, a decent situation to try to improve something. Because if my situation was terrible, it would have probably prompted me to just leave earlier, right? And leave with absolutely no regrets. So I definitely understand that. Seneca has this great quote that we suffer more from our imaginations than we do in reality. And I think that's something that can plague yeah. a lot of founders, especially people in your situation where you quit this amazing job and you're like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, did I make the wrong choice? But like, that's all just in your head. These are like worries that haven't actually materialized. And the actual reality of things, like your life's still fine. You're just working on things you want to work on now. So in fact, your life is better. 
<laughs> no, no, I, I, and uh, absolutely. But uh, a few things, basically, I think what happened to me, was, I, actually, to be honest, I think imagination a little bit helped me as well. The way things happened, uh, my sort of my finances improved radically in like a fairly short period of time. And even my sort of career status within the sort of five years, I joined as a junior, I was a senior, sort of my, my, my compensation more than increased five times. And I like the, the, the period five years before, I, it was still fresh in my memory. Mm. And I started reflecting, like how, how different was my life back then? Sure, I had a, I, like a, had a smaller house, had a smaller car, had fewer material possessions. I used to think a bit harder before upgrading my laptop and my phone and whatever. But is that, is that really it? I mean, how much, how much sacrifice? Uh, how, how, how many things am I going to trade <laughs> sort of for this? small improvement basically i think i don't get me wrong like i think money improves lifestyle significantly but there's i think there's extreme diminishing returns after you exceed a certain point and basically i think once you end up in the situation where you're sort of trapped into this lifestyle where everything around you is just focused and optimized for climbing up the color ladder keep getting promoted like it's it's literally the that race, sort of how I described it. I never really thought about it that way when I was there. Like I used to think it's something else, but now that I'm out, it's sort of how I see it. That you're just there, and the environment just forces you to just keep pushing, keep keep competing. Like every day, you're being asked, "What can you do better? What can you keep improving?" <laughs> but then, if you step back and look outside. <laughs> Uh, basically, uh, but th- this is it. I, I think now, nowadays, even now, even now that I'm working for myself, pretty much every time I ask myself, if this is not improving my life, what's the point, right? And go even back to the to the newsletter, <laughs> right? If or something like any other commitment, and if I find myself that I'm doing something, sort of, I'm forcing myself to do it, I question it. Like, what's the point? Is it going to materially improve my life? Is are the odds? Uh, very high that's going to sort of make a significant difference if not i tend to <laughs> just give up on it so you're at this point where you've quit your job your five hundred thousand dollar a year salary is gone you've got five years of runway but probably your family and your coworkers all think you're crazy what's the first thing you do when you're in that situation <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's, it's true right many people thought i was crazy family and friends i think sometimes when you're in these sort of casual conversations, it's a bit uncomfortable to describe what you're doing. Like I remember, I think a couple of weeks later, I went to the dentist who asked me, are you still at Amazon? I said, no, what are you doing? And <laughs> I didn't know what to respond. Like I'm just <laughs> exploring. <laughs> so sometimes I think it helps to prepare yourself to have a good sort of canned response to give in casual conversations. I think with family and friends, when you have the opportunity to describe better I think people start to get it. And this is what happened when I was explaining it to my colleagues at Amazon uh, in the last week when I told them I was leaving. It was funny because I booked, I think, a 15-minute meeting with everyone, (laughs) expecting that I was just going to tell them I'm leaving. And many of these conversations ended up taking like three hours, like we were there until eight eight at night because people were fascinated. Like, And then we started talking and many people had sort of similar thoughts and they started to realize similar things. People understand it once you start explaining it's a bit harder when you're just sort of in, 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 a, in a party <laughs> and you have to describe what, what you're doing. <laughs> Did you have like a solid plan for how you're going to achieve the goals that you wanted to achieve or what your first steps were going to be? Yeah, so I had a plan which ended up being, in hindsight, I think a mistake. Like I, had, uh, I had a nice spreadsheet <laughs> where I pretty much 
started with my savings balance and my sort of expense rate and I knew the downward slope. And then basically, I had a series of plans and that in my head were sort of the ideal things that I would be doing. And for example, my, my first preference was to build a SaaS business, right? And uh, you know, go that route. And then basically I thought if that didn't work out, I might try to do an info product, try to write a book. And if that didn't work out, I thought I might do some freelancing. Then the next step was I might try to acquire uh, maybe a small business, like there's this market of online businesses that sell for maybe $100,000 to $100,000, and I might try to run it. And I probably I had a couple of other things that I'm forgetting. But sort of I had like on my savings balance, I had like red lines that if I drop below this line, I'll trigger <laughs> plan B right, and plan C. And I, I started for the first six months with sort of that assumption that that's how I, how I was going to work. Um, but then I think about six months in, I had a bit of a, a small crisis. I remember like uh, I, <laughs> I, was, I was feeling that even though I was executing on plan A, basically all the uncertainty that came with not knowing whether something is going to succeed or fail, or even what does success or fail mean, right? What if something is working, but it's still work, it's growing slowly? And what if something appears that's going to require a lot of time? How will I decide to pull the trigger and sort of pivot to plan B? And sort of all that uncertainty about, you know, it being very hard to even decide started making me extremely uncomfortable, literally keeping me up at night. Like it's literally the subconscious nagging you. There's something in our head that sort of tries to prevent us from taking imprudent risks and <laughs> sort of risking things that are detrimental to our survival. And, <laughs> and this, I think, was fully active at that time, like sort of pinging me <laughs> to question what I was doing. I'm happy that I listened to it, that I didn't try to suppress it, because I think it opened my eyes to a different approach that now I believe it's significantly more, more preferable. I think it significantly helps tame the uncertainty when you're into this type of venture. And believe it or not, I'm liking it, and, like it, I'm liking it more. And basically, this is, the, this is the idea that instead of doing things in series, like instead of so 100% focus on one thing. When it fails, you, you go to plan B. You just try to do all of them together. I try to do many different things together at the cost of some efficiency and some focus, but trying to employ the 80-20 rule and sort of, again, like trying to eliminate what's uh, the details and just focus on, on the most important things. You've also worked on, you know, one of these other things you've worked on is a SaaS application called UserBase. And in my experience, it's very hard to build a successful SaaS, especially as a solo founder. A lot of the fears that you had earlier on, which is like, you know, what if I work on this for six months and it doesn't work out, are totally justified because that happens all the time. There's just so much more work that needs to go into a SaaS compared to an info product or an ebook or something. And you just get less feedback along the way unless you can find like super clever ways to just like build these like tiny minimum viable products. Give me like an overview of the story behind user base and how it's going. Yeah, it was. So user base emerged when I was still in the mode of believing that I was going to focus on one thing. At the time, I thought that it was probably the most, my best bet right, to sort of work on something that I understood well, sort of I came from a background of working in sort of databases and tools for developers. And this was sort of a combination of that. And I, I enjoyed the space. In hindsight, I think I ended up investing a lot more time, a lot more money into it than I would have liked. Nevertheless, sort of the, the arrangement that I managed to do later, it allowed me to let it take its time, essentially. Right? I mean, 
I'm so happy that I managed to build it in, in a very lean way. It's already profitable, even though it just has only about 100 paid customers. So sort of just break even profitable, like not, not doing anything significant. Just uh, I think we just closed over $500 in MLR. So it's still very, very early days. But I think it's it's something that I can leave there just with with minor and sort of basically with, with the option of me spending more time on it, but not the obligation. And basically, more time is beneficial to it. Like, I mean, it's, it's breaking even, but I like that I managed to position it in such a way that it's only doing $500 a month. It's nothing significant right now, but uh, it's possible that in five years, six years, it could become a six-figure dollar per year business, right? And if that were to happen, I think it would have been worth it, even all the investment that I've put into it. So what is it exactly? Like, what's the idea behind UserBase? So the idea started, I was exploring some ideas about building end-to-end encrypted web apps. Like imagine a productivity app where all the data that users put would end up being end-to-end encrypted with keys generated from the user's password such that the server would never see it. It's sort of a way to both improve the privacy of the user data as well as sort of spares the developer and the sort of web app owner from all the liability of dealing with user data and clear helps compliance aspects and so on and so forth. So at first I was thinking of building a web app like that and I thought maybe why don't I build just the framework for it? And this is pretty much what it is. It's close to Firebase, like in terms of concept. I think you use Firebase for in the hacker side. So it's basically like Firebase where you have an authentication API and like a database API for storing stuff. But the special ingredient, the, the special feature is this end-to-end encrypted feature. It's a super niche place. We rank really, really high when you search for end-to-end encrypted web apps and, and things like that on Google and in other places. It did well on Product Hunt. We got a good boost on launch. But I think one of the biggest challenges, I get about 10, 15 signups every day. The biggest challenge is that there's an extremely, extremely long lead time from when people, you know, sign up and try the demo and play about a bit with it and then uh the sort of and then they arrive to a point where they need to build a production app and they end up sort of taking the wallet out of their pocket to pay like the 50 bucks per year it's extremely cheap as well right it's just not expensive compared to hosting your own servers or whatever so that's one of the defects of this business model that i've sort of um, underestimated a little bit right Uh, that if i were to go back basically i'll admit probably i'll find something smaller i think that would better fit my smaller bets something with a shorter feedback loop that didn't require lots of investment basically i ended up having to hire somebody to help me as well because it turns out turned out to be more complicated than i thought right so I, I wouldn't say it's a mistake. Like now, I like the situation where it is right now, and I'm going to keep investing my time, just trying to keep promote it and improve the product. And again, like it's all upside from here, but it sort of violates a little bit my criteria that I've defined right now of <laughs> of smallish, smaller bets, especially in the beginning. Right? I think if I was much more, if my my arrangement was much more sustainable, I think these kinds of bets become much more okay, right, in my strategy. But in the beginning, I would rather go with smaller, low-hanging fruit that are more likely to succeed faster, <laughs> even at a lower upside potential. I like the way you're describing these as bets and that you have like, multiple bets that are out there and any of them could pay off, right? You've got a couple different eBooks, you've got user base, which is still going strong and it's apparently profitable. 
And I think in the same way, like with indie hackers, I have this giant directory of products and there's like 12,000 products in there. And like, there's a lot I could do with that, but it's kind of on the back burner at the moment. We've got the forum and the podcast and our newsletter. And it just feels a lot less risky when you have many things going on at the same time, even though that might detract a little bit from your focus. Like some of these things can just sustain themselves. It sounds like user base is basically running itself. And the fact that you left behind the zero mindset where you have to do one thing at a time and then shut it down when it's over really is to your advantage because yeah, now it's like... There's no need to shut it down. Exactly. And yeah. like maybe five years from now, there'll be this huge success story about how user base is crushing it and it's an overnight success. But the reality is like, it's not an overnight success. <laughs> yeah. You just left it. And now you're doing you know, a lot of other stuff that seems to be more immediately profitable. I think you could see time as your enemy and time as your friend. Right? I think if you're in, in a mode where you're, you have a finite runway and you need to get something to work, Time is essentially your enemy, right? Every second that ticks, getting you closer to running out of money or resources or whatever. Because I think if you manage to put these bets where time is your friend, right? Basically, every second that comes, this could just bring a new customer and if somebody influential mentions it, right? Or something happens. And I think it's preferable. You can't always do this, right? But I think it's preferable to place bets that uh, in such a way where time is your friend, right? Just time exposes you to upside only. It's because either your costs are covered or they're very small that you can just bear them forever or almost forever. Okay, so that's super smart. User base is now in a situation where time's on your side. The project's running itself. It doesn't cost any money. Uh, it doesn't cost any attention. What do you do now that you've abandoned this serial one thing at a time approach? Basically, the very first thing I tried to do when, when I realized that I needed to do this was I went to look out a little bit for some freelancing work. And I happened to be lucky. I had a friend who was living close by, had a startup and needed some help. And we agreed that I'll be taking about 20 hours a month, like just a tiny amount. Uh, I was just going to spend uh, two, three days a month, pick up a couple of tasks from buried backlog and that just help develop them for them. This immediately helped me. Like it was something very clear <laughs> in my psychology, how much it had, even though it was just you know an extra thousand, two thousand dollars a month in income, which was nowhere close to even sort of paying all my bills or being sort of sufficient. But basically, I realized that before I was just relying on the idea that if things don't work out, I could always go find some freelancing. But it's much, much different if you're already doing a little bit right now, right? I mean, the, the, the difference from thinking you can do it, from actually I'm doing it, and if I want to, I can do more of it. There's a significant difference. <laughs> so I was so happy, you know, that I found so much peace of mind with just this small change that then I realized that why don't I try something else, maybe maybe a few more things. And, you know, my, my plan B was to try to write an info product. I had already, or to, uh, like an ebook or create, you know, share some knowledge that I have in, in terms of a product. And I said, okay, let me see. I mean, what are some low hanging fruits? Like, what is something that I know really well that maybe I could market myself? We can talk about, about the topic of building an audience. By the time I had a little bit of a Twitter following, I had about 10,000 followers. I had been tweeting mostly technical stuff at the time, and people seemed to be interested in uh, what I had to say. And I said, okay, I know a lot of, about AWS. I worked there for like eight years. I had been using it two years before. I thought I had an interesting perspective on how to simplify this daunting topic with lots of moving parts. <laughs> I decided to write a very short ebook. Like I, I allocated a month. It ended up taking even less. 
uh, than that. Sort of, I put it out there. We can talk more about this, but it turned out to be one of my most <laughs> uh, sort of successful things in terms of financial outcomes. It made over $100,000, just that book. And then I ended up doing another uh, info product, which did another 150K. But uh, sort of, I discovered not only that I enjoy creating info products, I enjoy marketing them, talking about them, I enjoy the whole creator economy. It helped me financially as well. Right? It's something that I now realize it's something you could. I could at least make a living out of it, very likely. It helped me in multiple ways. Right? As we were talking about before, it helps in peace of mind, taming uncertainty. Basically, when you're doing multiple things, sometimes yeah. you get a win from one thing, sometimes the next day you get a win from some other thing. Right? It sort of smooths out the sort of spiky nature <laughs> of, uh, of this business. The other thing that was really fascinating was that it felt like it worked even more, even better for me to find motivation. Right? I think no matter how much we like to do something, you always at some point, you know, you want a break. And sort of having multiple things going on at the same time just allows you to just shift attention to something else. Whenever I feel like, you know, I've, I've done enough of this, I can shift attention to just, you know, do some promotion for our products or maybe start working on a new one or, you know, do something else, right? Or explore some new ideas, right? It's really helping me for sort of finding almost free energy <laughs> to keep doing things. Well, this is one of the things I love about your story is that you're always working on so many different things. And I think most people, when they quit their job, or even if they don't, and they're just working on side projects, they might also work on a ton of different things, but they don't quite learn the right lessons. They're not sure what the takeaways are if something you know doesn't go well. Whereas you had all these different projects. You had UserBase, which we talked about. You had another one called S3 Benchmark. You had another project called Bootstrapping Calculator. You're writing a ton of blog posts. You're doing a ton of tweeting. You took on a freelance job. You eventually wrote this ebook, all in the span of less than a year. Tell me about some of the earlier projects you're working on and how you thought about learning the right lessons from each one of these. So I think something that I definitely believe, I think I did very, very well in the beginning. Again, wasn't wasn't necessarily planned, but I managed to figure it out pretty much in the very first week as I was on, on my own. Uh, I was sitting here on my desk, like literally the first Monday as a self-employed person. And initially, I think my very first thought that I was going to be prototyping some software products so I had to sort of be building something and just putting it out there. And very, very quickly, I imagined myself spending you know, six months or whatever, like building something, and then I put it out there, share it on Hacker News, share it on Reddit, and nobody upvotes it and nobody sees it, right? And then <laughs> now what, right? I mean, what, what will I do? <laughs> that was quite daunting, right? So not only it was daunting, but it was demotivating as well, right? Because I could imagine myself being very demotivated if that happened. Like it could probably have prompted me to maybe to go back to, to full-time employment, right? Very easily, uh, very easy for that to happen. So I think I sh changed my attitude in, in, in a little bit. And I really started to try to figure out the probability. I, I, I really believe it's really important. And I think people tend to undervalue and be sometimes overly optimistic sometimes, right? And, and sort of factoring in the probability of something working. I mean, sure, failure, you can learn from it. But to be honest, I think sometimes we try to sort of, uh, I think, give too much value to failure. I think failure is very expensive. <laughs> uh, full, 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 I mean, full-blown failure, like spending a year or something working on something is, is a very expensive way of learning <laughs> a lesson. Long story short, I think basically the first thing I realized that was against me in trying to make a living on my own is that pretty much nobody knew about me <laughs> outside of the companies that I had worked on in the past. And since pretty much for the last decade almost, I had just worked in a single company, I was pretty much unknown to the world. 
So uh, I became extremely determined to try to make myself known a little bit. And it was something that I had never really done, had no social media experience. You know, even the concept of building an audience was something that I didn't really understand. Um, so I started thinking, like, what can I do? Like, what can I, uh, what can I do to sort of, for people to start to recognize myself so that when, I'm, uh, when I have something to offer, people have a, will have a reason to trust me, right, to see what I'm putting out there, and so on and so forth. Initially, I started wondering whether I should maybe build an open source project and sort of use that route to get myself known a little bit. But then I, I don't really remember exactly how it happened, but uh, I thought maybe the best thing to do might be to start writing something. And I started thinking about what can I write about. <laughs> and the very first thing that I, one of the first first things I thought about was just what we talked about just a few minutes ago, right? the fact that when I was telling my colleagues why I was leaving, <laughs> my colleagues were extremely interested, right? And they were sort of very fascinated. And I thought if, if it was fascinating <laughs> for like those 10 people, maybe people on the internet might find it <laughs> interesting as well. So I, I said, let's give it a try. And uh, that was sort of my first uh, sort of uh, attempt at sort of putting something out there and building an audience. Right? This is what sort of I ended up it ended up being so I wrote this blog post that was called Only Intrinsic Motivation Last, why, why I left a 500k job to work for myself. I shared it on the usual places, uh, even on the hackers, which, which did really well, and Reddit and Hacker News. And this got me my first few, uh, I think it got me my first 1500 followers, which basically were people uh, that were interested, uh, or sometimes they were just curious about what I would be doing next, or they aspire to do something different, right? And they wanted to learn more. I invited people to ask me questions and I started answering. I remember I got like probably like hundred, over a hundred DMs and email that day, right? After <laughs> sort of, uh, after that, that blog post. And it opened my eyes that, uh, that I can probably continue to do more of this, right? And that's pretty much how I spent almost all of 2019. Probably it was my main focus, just pretty much rearranging my life, I'm changing some of my lifestyle, I'm sort of setting up a new business, I'm brainstorming ideas, and I was just documenting these. Even some of the most mundane things like opening up a business checking account and sort of figuring these things out, I was tweeting about them and I was seeing people liking, uh, liking them, right? Again, like asking questions and sort of helping. And slowly but surely, it attracted, I think, by, so I left, started in February with like 100 followers on Twitter and like no other social media experience. And I think by October, uh, I had over 10,000. Uh, it was probably, I think it probably still is. It's probably one of my biggest assets right now, right? just because it gives me tons of optionalities. It's probably my market research arm. Like people tell me what they're interested in. It definitely takes part of my time. That's probably one of my, my bets as well in my portfolio. Like I spend hours a day just answering questions and putting out content and doing things like that. What's striking to me about this first story about you noticing that your coworkers we're very intrigued by you quitting and that maybe other people would read about it is that you're not the first person to do this. A lot of people have written posts about how I quit my job and decided to be an indie hacker. And not all of them ended up with people getting thousands of followers and uh, you know hundreds of direct messages. So what do you think it was about your particular post that resonated so well? I think I'll be completely honest. I think something resonated. Uh, it's hard for me to know what it is, uh, but it's sure something resonated because that post was seen over 200,000 times in total since then. I don't know. I don't know if I can go back. I tried to write other, other posts, which didn't do as, as well. But what I think people can take away from this is that 
that got me my first 1500 followers, right? Which uh, f- for me to get the other 46,000, I had to do other things, right? And the other things, you know, again, like this is very hard to predict what, what, what exactly will work. And you know, sometimes I post a tweet and it goes viral and gets me a thousand followers. I still think it's almost completely impossible, almost impossible to predict whether something will do well or not. I think what really helped me was the determination, right? Of I really wanted to look at what I had in me, in my head, on my computer. Like you mentioned that bootstrapping calculator. That was literally a spreadsheet, one of the spreadsheets that I was talking about <laughs> that I had on my laptop. And I was looking at it one day, like just to make sure that I was still tracking the line that I projected. And I thought, well, maybe this is this is this might be interesting to other people. Literally, I uploaded it to GitHub. I shared it on Hacker News on a Sunday. I think at two a.m., my kid was sick and was keep, was sort of I couldn't sleep, and <laughs> um, uh, like it went on the front page. I think Elon Musk had just dogged with the space station, and I was linking up <laughs> above him, <laughs> like, which was which is quite crazy when you think about it. But I'll admit, like I, I shared probably dozens other things that that went nowhere, like which I thought I. Ta- I I had the same attitude to them. But I think it's just this system of looking at yourself, looking at what you have in you, what experiences you've run through, what you're learning, and just sharing them. Something that I'm doing well, that I see sometimes people doing suboptimally, is that I try, again, like it's just trying to deploy, employ the 80-20 rule. I really don't obsess too much about optimizing the piece, search engine optimization, picking up the best title, t- even timing. Like I post, I never really t- try to time my tweets or whatever. As soon as inspiration strikes, I try to literally do it, share it, and get rid of it. Right? It's, and I think it just helps me to, it's just easier for me. Like I, I, I don't try to spend too much time on things. It just starts to feel um, uh, unpleasant. But also to just keep the flow going without necessarily, I think, forcing myself. It's just when something really happens and I notice it might be interesting to others, I tend to just share it. I, I got better at it. Like I'll admit, like the, in the beginning, I used to have to sit down and think what happened to the, today that might be interesting to share. Nowadays, I literally just encounter things and they just tweet about them immediately. <laughs> which, which is, I think, is why Twitter became my platform of choice. Like I, I rarely like long form anymore. I do it occasionally, maybe once every two months when I have something that doesn't really fit in a tweet. But I think Twitter is just perfect for my way of sharing and documenting my journey because it's just updates in real time that I think I can just condense them to these sort of short snippets that are just very easy to consume. Well, looking at a lot of the writing that you've done, it seems like you're super good at it. And maybe it's like, I'm only seeing the stuff that succeeds and I'm not seeing the stuff that doesn't take (laughs) off. But for example, your posts on Indie Hackers, when I look at how much engagement they've gotten, your latest post, how I made $210,000 selling a PDF and a video on the internet. It has 193 upvotes, you know, 9,000 views on Indie Hackers. Your earlier post always got like 50 upvotes, 30 upvotes, 3,000 views, 2,000 views. And there are a ton of people who are trying to post helpful, interesting things on Indie Hackers who aren't getting yeah. even a fraction of the upvotes and the views that you're getting. So it's got to be more than just you being prolific here. Yeah. I mean, what do you know that other people don't know? So I think the general answer to this is that I try to share details that I wish I had when I was starting out, right? And um, I started to realize that some of the most inspiring details tend to be financial details. I think people are extremely curious, about, especially about a non-traditional way of making a living, especially in the indie hackers community, probably, right? But even other places, even on Hacker News, even on various subreddits, 
even in real life, right? If you were to talk with people and share compensation and uh, say uh, personal finances, you notice right, that people are extremely curious because it's not something that tends to be shared a lot. And I think it's, I don't know, something in me, uh, and this is, I've been doing this, I think, since I was 17, 18 years old. Like, I mean, I, I was always talking about my income and my finances. It was something with friends, something that I feel comfortable about it. Like, even when I was at Amazon, I was to share how, how much I'm doing. I mean, pl- with small groups, not publicly, but one-on-ones with people to try to encourage them, you know, to, to ask for raises and things like that. Um, and I had no, always noticed that it's something that people really value. Oh, wow, you're sharing all this stuff with me. So I, basically, I think if I were to generalize the idea a little bit, I think there is, if you manage to make yourself comfortable sharing things that tend to be rarely shared, I think you get an extremely, you know, an extreme advantage. You don't necessarily need to do this. Like there's many, many other people who manage to build an audience without really doing any, sharing anything, you know, that others might find maybe sensitive to share. But I think it's very likely, for example, that that post that you mentioned, that where I sort of uh, d- tried to do this still sort of uh, how, I, how I managed to promote my info products and sort of pretty much I, I broke down every dollar where it came from. I think all the financial information, like all the, all the details, all the promotion campaigns that I tried and sort of, you know, pretty much sharing screenshots from my spreadsheet. I think just people really, really value that. But it's basically, I think I don't want people to take away that you, you have to sort of show your financial information. But I think it's a good, at, good um, sort, of, uh, uh, sort of framework to think about it. Like, do I have something in me that is fairly shared that people will appreciate it? Right? Well, it will help them. That's basically what you want to do. Right? I mean, did these financial details help in this case? It, was, it opens people's eyes of, okay, you know, here's, here's one way to do it, right? Or here's one approach that worked. It doesn't necessarily, people, everyone knows that there might be survivorship bias and, you know, you're just seeing maybe a success story. But, but even, even with that, like, I mean, I think people realize, I mean, you could actually uh, self-publish an ebook today with 10,000 followers and make $100,000, right? I mean, you know, a year, two years ago, I didn't know this was even possible. I used to think that te- technical writers make $10,000 if they're lucky, $20,000, and they go to like two years of grueling work, <laughs> working with a publisher and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think that's probably uh, something that, uh, an example, at least one example that really helps engagement. I think numbers are always engaging because it's just such a, an intense competition for attention and readers nowadays. Like if you're just writing the same thing everyone else is writing, and you're not sharing things that are rarely shared or that are super valuable, then no one's going to read it. And the numbers don't have to necessarily be financial. They just have to be relevant to like whatever success you've had. So if you're talking about writing a book, like you could talk about you know, how many copies you've sold without revealing the numbers. So if you're talking about like doing searches and optimization, you could talk about how many page views you're getting from Google. And I think in the absence of those numbers, it's hard for anyone who's reading to actually take any value away from what you've written because it's like, well, you know, this person's giving me tips, but like, how successful are these tips going to yeah. make me exactly? You know, am I going to get a million visitors? Am I going to get a hundred thousand visitors? And you know, to this day, I get emails and DMs from people who say, you know, why should I be transparent? Everybody's sharing all these numbers, whatever. Why should I do it? And like, this is the exact answer because if you care about actually giving value to your readers, like, you need to share something with them that's going to inspire them and like give them some context. And like, you're very consistently good at doing that. It's almost in every single thing that you do, you figure out like 
what is the number that you need to share that actually resonates with people. And I've realized the same thing with indie hackers as well. Like all of our interviews are transparent. We share revenue numbers and it just resonates with people who are actually trying to be practitioners and learn how to do the thing. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. And I think there is so much lack of clarity about what, what it means, like what it means to start something new. I mean, what, what do the first 12 months look like that I think just looking at even just anecdotal examples is extremely useful. That's what I try to do. And I try to caveat because again, like whenever I share on Twitter, so for example, uh, like I can't guarantee that this is predictable. That is typically one of the first thing I say. Probably even if I were to go myself back in time and do the exact same things, I might not get the exact results. Nevertheless, I think there's still lots of value in just sharing how things turned out. It just opens people's eyes um, and just helps people calibrate themselves about what the odds are for them. This is what happened to me, right? I looked at other creators that were sharing um, uh, sort of some knowledge they had. Adam, for example, you had him on the podcast from Tailwind, uh, the factoring UI and all the other great things he does. You know, when I, I think when I bought one of his books, sort of, it was really, really interesting. I liked the format that was not filled with fluff. It was pretty much just a brain dump with light editing seemed like in a word doc, save as PDF. And we put it online for sale. You ask $25 for it. Uh, I was a happy customer. I, I, it was $25 where it spent or how, mu- how much it was. And I think just, just that experience inspired me and, and basically learning that he did very well with it as well. He made uh, six figures and now much, even much, much more <laughs> um, uh, inspired me to, to consider it as an option for me when I was evaluating what options do I have that became a very viable candidate. There's this equation by BJ Fogg as to what gets people to engage in behavior. And it's B equals MAT. So behavior equals motivation plus ability plus trigger. Motivation is, hey, look how much money I'm making from my ebook, which people are like, oh, wow, I want to make that much money from an (laughs) ebook. Ability is like when you in your posts and your guides, you go into like describing how to do this. And then people feel the confidence, oh, I could do this too. So now they have the motivation and the ability. And then like the trigger, like some sort of call to action. Like here's the very first step you should take. Or here's some life change, you know, that you could, you know, quit your job or you can, you know, go freelance or just some way to actually get the ball rolling because that's often the hardest step. But once you get all three of those together, I think people tend to take action. When people take action, then they share, hey, you know, I read, you know, Daniel Vasallo's thing and it made me like change my life. I read Adam Wadden's like tweets and it changed my life. And that... I think is super valuable, and you seem to like cover all those spaces. I, I love that. Yeah, I, I never thought about it that way, but it makes perfect sense. At some point, you hit on the fact that you know just writing these blog posts about what you're doing and these tweets about what you're doing is working really well, and you create an ebook, the good parts of AWS, and that works really well. You you make you know over a hundred thousand dollars and not very much time. What's interesting here is that I think a lot of people, when they're trying to figure out what to do follow this kind of explore-exploit algorithm where it's like, well, let me try a bunch of different things. And then once I hit on something that works, I'm just going to like press the gas pedal on that and just keep doing that. Whereas you took a different approach. You, know, you realize that, like, hey, writing an ebook is like a really great way to take advantage of my audience and like the goodwill that I've built and the trust that I've generated and to like make a lot of money. Like Maybe this is the approach, but you didn't just like stop working on your other projects. Like you didn't shut down your SaaS application and go 100% on that. Why not? Yeah, right now I'm treating everything as, I'm treating this arrangement as, uh, I'm not treating it as temporary. Let, let me put it that way. I'm not thinking that I'm doing these just waiting until something picks up and just go full attention on it. 
the reasons I think are various. One of them I think is I'm just enjoying it better right now. I think some value from my life would diminish if I just had one thing instead of four things. Um, another part is basically diversification, like in investment terms, like you're basically having to, not your, all, all your eggs in one basket. I think it just helps tame the unpredictability and uncertainty of different things. I think even if something is showing much more promise than others, it just helps. Part of it is motivation as well. It's just good to have something else to do. And to be honest, this is something that I've noticed many other successful business people do even outside of tech right i mean it's very common for people to have you know a main business and then you know they join a board of directors at another company even if they're doing it almost for free right and they join other things i think it's something that people tend to do and it's not very often noticed i think i'd rather have things going on that i'm sort of have control over them myself right rather than just join other things yeah. like you know even even if you look at celebrities like you can look at Mike Cuban, right? He's like a billionaire. Like, why does he go on Shark Tank and like get him, do investments right. in like small businesses? Who know? Like, I, I don't know him, right? Who knows? But I, I suspect part of it is just it's fun, right? It's sort of it, it enhances your life to have a few other things going on, right? You, you sort of you can look at this thing. It's just you enjoy it. And I'm definitely not that extreme. I, I think probably my life would suffer if I had like hundreds of different things. I think there's a there's a smaller balance. But yeah, like, like now that's how I'm organizing my life, like just building a portfolio of things that I enjoy doing, that I think they have potential and high odds of going, continuing to succeed. Maybe, you know, five years from now, maybe something is, is going so much well that I will change my mind. Like I, I'm not sort of committing <laughs> uh, that this is, this is, but it's part of the discovery, right? And like now sort of this seems to be my ideal arrangement. I mean, it's aligns with what? you left as a comment on Indie Hackers a couple of years ago that you're doing this because you want to work on your own terms and do whatever motivates you. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's hard to do when you're working for somebody else. Like it's, especially in like a huge company like Amazon, you're more likely to be pigeonholed into a very particular, like a very particular cog in this whole machine. If you're a software engineer, you're going to spend like 99% of your time coding. Whereas when I talk to founders and people who've created their own sort of lifestyle as a result of their business, it turns out they have like all these little hobbies where they can do like four or five things. Like if I look at my life with Indie Hackers, usually Monday, Tuesday, some of Wednesday, I'm doing podcast stuff. And it turns out it's like really fun to have a podcast to get to meet people and talk to them and like research what's going on in their lives. But then like the rest of the week, I might have days where I'm writing or days where I'm managing like my team or days where I'm like, I spend a lot of time coding and designing. And, you know, people have asked me like, oh, what are you going to do when you get bored of Indie Hackers? And it's like, well... I don't know. I don't see a future in which I get bored of doing like all these different things that I like to do. And I have like the ability to just shuffle them in and out whenever I feel like it. You know, it's really hard to imagine getting tired of that lifestyle. Absolutely. No, no, I completely agree. So we've talked a bit about you sharing numbers and that being a big part of the reason why your writings resonate so well with people. And one of the numbers that you've shared, in addition to just revenue numbers, is hours. You'll reveal exactly how many hours you put into each of your products. So your first info product, your book about AWS, you put something like 160 hours into that. You made $100,000. And your next info product, which is about how everybody can build an audience on Twitter, you put something crazy like 16 hours into it. It was like 10 times less. And it's made, I think, 150 grand, which is just nuts. That's something close to, to $9,000 an hour. How were you able to put this thing out so fast? 
I did this intentionally. In fact, I was going to do a book, an ebook, a traditional ebook at first, but I was wondering. I didn't want to test the idea of going even more extreme in terms of ROI. And you know, when you write a book, I think it's actually really hard to do it in three days. Yeah. There's, I mean, I I can barely write a blog post in three days, right? So there's always some editing and clarif- you know, you need to find the right words. So I thought maybe the best way for me to do this presentation, it's like I'm just recording a talk at a conference. You know? So I pretty much on, on a Friday, I prepared a few slides. <laughs> on, uh, on uh, the next day, on the Saturday, I pretty much uh, started ScreenFlow, recorded myself talking over the slides for an hour and a half. And then I spent the next day just you know, preparing the cover on Gumroad and setting the price, setting the description. And that was it, right? And I shared it on Twitter, sort of did $50,000 in the first week. Um, and it's sort of, it's still doing $400, $500 a day. Like uh, we released it in April, like it's like six months. But I think, and this, this was, uh, again, like this was something, the inspiration came from seeing another creator, somebody completely out of, outside of tech. I was once, I was browsing Twitter. I saw that the, there was this woman who, who was doing something completely alien to me, like buying returned goods from Amazon and Walmart and pallets and just selling them over eBay. And there was this tweet. Uh, here's how I did $70,000 in profit last year by just buying these pallets of returned stuff and selling them over eBay. And I, it was $25 as a, as, a co- as a video course. And I, you know, I bought it out of curiosity. And it was really inspiring how basically, I mean, she went literally with her iPhone just to, to, a, to a warehouse and she went with her car and explained what she did and how she picked the pellets and how she goes over the internet and which sites she chooses and so on and so forth. She just explained what she knew. And I was really fascinated. I was really, it was really $25 worth well spent. Basically, I just spent an hour watching this video. It was really genuine, like first first sort of person view <laughs> of her world. And I, again, like it was an example of, uh, I asked myself, what if I do it this way? I was still thinking I was going to write a book. And I thought, wow, I could probably do this in probably a day or two. Uh, it's, it might even come off better, like if I just explain it and I could share my screen. And that's something that really helped. Like I just, you know, just shared my screen and g- went over a few examples of good tweets and good accounts and so on and so forth. And yeah, I think this is a, this is a good a uh, good example of sort of uh, realizing that there are, there are different formats. This is a good example of the 80-20 rule. And by the way, when I was thinking about video, many people told me video takes forever. You're going to spend for every hour of recording, you're going to spend 100 hours editing. And I just wanted to prove them wrong, <laughs> like do completely the opposite. Like I did absolutely no editing apart from just literally just making my face and sort of <laughs> in, the, in the top bottom corner, which I spent probably an hour on that. <laughs> but I just left all the ums, all the sort of uh, noises and whatever. I think basically this is something interesting that you could, basically people in this sort of market value information quality a lot, lot more than production quality. As long as you meet some very minimum bar that your sound is clear and whatever your sh- the text is readable and what so on and so forth and you know what you're presenting makes sense. What they value is what they're learning. This doesn't need to be a masterpiece that's going to live forever. Like this to compare it with like you you're you're listening to a talk at a conference. Like you just hear somebody talk for an hour, share a few slides. And the internet and having an audience just helps you price these things at a reasonable price point that makes it almost an impulse buy. 
pack a lot of information at high density, you know, and just, I, I can prove, and many people can prove that, you know, you, you can find thousands of people willing to pay $25, $50 to learn something from you that might have taken you a year, two years to learn for yourself. It's a very compelling value proposition, right? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it worked really well. Right? So I think, again, like I encourage people to consider different formats. Uh, I had never done video. It's not something that I was comfortable with. I had never recorded myself. Right, so again, like I'm, I'm far from well polished <laughs> uh, presentation, but um, it works. I mean, there's a ton of experimentation right now. Paid newsletters are obviously the thing. Everybody has a Substack. Everybody's charging a monthly or yearly subscription to read yeah. their newsletter, and this barely even registered as a trend this time last year, and, and suddenly it's blown up. I've talked to people who have other online video courses that they're doing, but they tend to err on the side of very high production quality. And you've kind of proven that that's not necessary. And in fact, there have been people who I've bought courses from online where I trust them so much that when I get their course, if it's really crappy and it just looks like, like it was just hacked together and it's this rough around the edges thing, I actually like it more because it kind of feels like I'm not getting this mass produced thing that everybody's getting. And it kind of feels like I'm getting like their secret knowledge. And so I think you're totally, totally right. Like what matters is the insight and the trust that you have with your audience more so than the quality of sort of like, you know, ancillary details around the production quality and, and the packaging if you're doing an online course. Do you think, you know, having tasted just how efficient you can be with, with video production that you'll you'll never go back to ebooks again? It's always going to be video? No, no, no. I I, I, I think so, yes. I, and I, I probably might actually. Um, no, no, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not against sometimes spending time to polish things as, as long as uh, you recognize that, the polish that you're doing is not necessarily going to translate into uh, more sales, or it's not it's not directly proportional. I mean, it might improve a little bit, but um, it might not. If you spend twice the time, it might not double your sales. Uh, basically, now, now, basically, now, I'm I'm starting to arrive in a situation where I think I I can take more liberty and not be so extreme with my ROI targets. Right. And, you know, now if I, if I need to write a book and I need to spend two months on it, I'm happy to do it. Right. I, I, I feel comfortable enough that I will almost certainly, it's not never certain, right, but extremely likely that I'll make enough sales that it will at least cover my two, two months of time. Right. So it's sort of, I can, I can do it much more comfortably. Whereas when I was doing those initial things, I, I, I'm completely honest. That has absolutely no idea whether I'll sell <laughs> even a single copy. Right, to totally honest. Right, I mean, and with the second product, I had a bit more confidence. Yeah. But especially with the first one, just whether I sell zero or hundred dollars or a thousand or ten hundred thousand, <laughs> completely random. So I think that though it it uh, that's why I think, as we mentioned at the beginning, that I think factoring in the probabilities, although they're very hard to calculate, is important. Right, uh, and in the beginning, the probabilities of this becoming a success, a success were low. Right, there was extreme uncertainty. So, I chose how much effort to put into them uh, in relation to the likelihood of them working, mm. uh, which I think is very, very important, especially in the beginning where you're testing the waters and just trying to understand what's viable, what's possible, what you'll enjoy doing, and so on and so forth. I think one of the the cool things about the way you approach things is that you leave so much free time that you have time to actually go back and look at the things that you've done in the past and analyze what worked and didn't work about it, which I see people often just kind of skipping. But also you have this exploratory time 
where since your days are unstructured, you're not sure what you're going to do every single day down to the minute. You can take time to just like browse around Twitter or whatever and like discover people from other niches and other categories who are doing things in different ways. Like that's what gave you the inspiration to do your video. Whereas often I think people feel like, you know, it's hard for them to come up with ideas. They don't have, uh, you know, that inspiration or they're not sure how to iterate and improve on things because they don't leave that time. And I've started doing this for myself recently. Like I bought an iPad last month or a couple months back and just created a new email account on it and just subscribe to a bunch of stuff just to read from all sorts of different niches. And I'll wake up in the morning with nothing to do and just like read random stuff for a couple hours. And it gives me a ton more ideas than when I wasn't taking the time to do that. Absolutely. I think spare time, something that I definitely try to leave plenty of it. And I think it helps in two ways, as you're saying, like it's just, it invites inspiration. You're just bumping into random things and you, you it makes you ask yourself whether there's something you want to do. And I think it allows you to t- sort of pounce on the opportunity. That's when inspiration strikes. I mean, at least for myself, many, many people, I, 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 whenever I mention this to people, some people t- believe that they, they work differently. But at least for me, I feel like both inspiration and opportunity are perishable, like they go away, like you can't just put them on the shelf. I mean, I used to collect lots of, I used to have, like many people do, like the ideas, <laughs> notes list in my app. And I stopped doing it. Like pretty much now, as soon as something inspires me, I wonder if there's an opportunity. And if, if, if it's there, I tend to just do it almost immediately. At least I'll start. Right? I'll just start writing, start doing something. Right? And um, it's, it's how I'm liking and how, how I'm sort of liking to operate. Right? It's sort of you get this free boost of energy. Uh, everything is still fresh in your head. Like uh, you sort of... It allows you to to to, to benefit from uh, from luck when it happens, right? When you just serendipity <laughs> gets you in the situations where you just see something that might that you might be able to do, and you see the opportunity that it might work, and you have you need to have the free time, right? If you, if your calendar, if your days are so squeezed uh, that uh, sort of you need to schedule something three months from now, it's very likely that. You know, the inspiration will disappear, the opportunity, you might not see it again, yep. right? It's just hard to get back again. Tobias Van Schneider is a head designer at Spotify for a while, and I, now he runs a very successful SaaS company and a, and a blog, but he had a, a blog post from a while back called Waste Your Ideas. And it was this exact same concept that, you know, he used to think, <laughs> oh, I'm going to put my ideas on the shelf, save them for a rainy day, and eventually they'll be great. But like, the consequence of that is that, where are you left now? You're left with all your ideas on the shelf, you're not working on your best stuff. And those ideas probably are just going to get worse over time because, as you said, they're perishable. So it's much better, like when you have these ideas, yeah. to do exactly what you're saying. Just get them out, get them down, like start working on them, and like you're going to have more ideas later. In fact, when you work on ideas, it's the best way to come up with new ideas in the future. So uh, I think a lot of people are stuck in this state of holding on to their ideas, like they're clutching their pearls. You know, like these are the last ideas yeah. they're ever going to have, <laughs> but uh, usually it's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. I, so yeah, we've been through your story from beginning to end, and obviously you've learned quite a lot on the way and I think you're, you're super successful with your products like they're making a crazy amount of money every day and it's just fun watching you what have you learned from your successes so far that you think you know a fledgling indie hacker might benefit from knowing what should they take away from your story so something something I I think I probably mentioned two things something I learned about I just tweeted about it this morning actually I was <laughs> thinking about what, I, what we might be talking about this interview and again like <laughs> the inspiration yeah. uh, I thought it might be interesting to people I think I discovered uh, another way of doing business right? because I used to think there's like this approach where you're just product first where you have a big idea 
and you try to make it work at all costs. Right? This is typically where people might end up going find looking for investments and things like that. There's the more traditional in the hacker approach where uh, you sort of start with a business strategy, right? You just want to make a, a self-sufficient, bootstrapped business, right? So you start with the business strategy and you try to take prudent risks uh, in such a way that you try to maximize profits with uh, what, with the constraint of of what you have. And um, I think what I learned just by trying to do the second one is that there's probably another approach, which is more lifestyle first, right? where you literally start with your preferred lifestyle mm-hmm. and um, then pretty much try to find business opportunities that enhance your lifestyle. And this is just, I think, knowing which one you're pursuing just helps you make decisions easier. Because I, at one point I thought I was doing, I, I, w- I was uncertain whether I was doing the second one or the third one until it's sort of clarif- it's clarified in my head that it's the third one that I want to be doing, right? It's, I'm, I'm, I'm doing these things to improve my lifestyle, right? So it really helps. And we touched on many other, many things um, uh, when we were talking about when choosing what to do and what to leave on the table, sort of recognizing this attitude is definitely helping a lot right now and helping me make decisions very quickly. The other point that I definitely learned and I uh, significantly underappreciated was that uh, uncertainty is extremely uncomfortable. Even though, as we as we said before, I was lucky. I had an abundant runway of over five years of saved expenses, like, and I had sort of planned mm-hmm. my burn down, and I was tracking it. After a few months, it started to become really, really painful almost psychologically right? to just see <laughs> these sort of losses accumulate in your savings account <laughs> and not knowing when it's going to stop, when you're going to know when things are working, that's how long you have to wait. Super stressful. To be, will I know? And yeah, it's really, really stressful. Right? And there's, I, yeah, again, I, I really believe I'm not, I'm not an expert, right? but it's really just from <laughs> looking at myself, there's something in our heads that just makes us worry about these things probably for a very good reason and i'm happy <laughs> because it helped me reevaluate my strategy basically i think my my advice it's still very general advice right? but i think it's really important to try to find ways to tame the uncertainty right? because i thought i was prepared for it um but um, uh, it becomes really uncomfortable and i think once you find a way to sort of tame uncertainty in such a way that you have sort of some very baseline that's that's like the downside is protected. I think things become much more easier um, uh, in terms of motivation, in terms of just even even identifying opportunities. I think many things I wouldn't have even noticed them in terms of opportunities. Right? If I was still worried about right. focusing 100% on the one thing, right? because it might have felt like a distraction. Like why bother with the info product? Probably I would have said, why bother with info products? I would be wasting time from this big thing that I'm doing right now. Whereas by um, sort of, if, if you take the attitude that I want to try many different things because it's just going to help diversify, help me sort of uh, spread my, my motivation and my attention on different things, it just also helps you expose yourself uh, to, to, to new opportunities, new, new good fortune <laughs> that you might not even recognize if you're just focused 100%. Well, I hope people take this to heart because this is all stuff that you can think about before you write your first line of code, like before you do anything, you can think about, okay, why am I starting a company? What do I want my life to be like? You know, what are the sources of stress and uncertainty and how do I minimize those? And I think 
people will be much happier and more successful with their companies <laughs> if they listen to your advice. So, uh, Daniel, thanks a ton for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Thank you, Caroline. This was a little fun. One of my favorite podcasts, I think. So, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Where can people go to learn more about all the different things you're up to and, and follow you on Twitter as well? No, yeah, I think the best way to follow what I'm doing is on Twitter. I tweet almost every day, pretty much. Uh, I try to keep a high <laughs> uh, signal <laughs> to noise ratio, and I tweet mostly about um, uh, my lifestyle, how I'm designing my lifestyle, and business-related uh, stuff. I try to answer to all the questions, so feel free to DM me or email me if you want to bounce an idea, do something similar that I, I, I did, and you want to share, see my perspective, I'm always happy to, to share that. So yeah, Twitter is the best place, Divasallo, D-V-A-S-S-A-L-L-O. All right. Thanks again, Daniel. Thank you, Karatlan. Bye. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want an easy way to support the podcast, you should leave a review for us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Probably the fastest way to get there if you're on a Mac is to visit ndhackers.com slash reviews. I really appreciate your support and I read pretty much all the reviews you leave over there. Thank you so much for listening and as always, I will see you next time. <laughs>